What's up, ASM? Glad you could be with us again as we are in our series on the Gospel of John that you may believe. This week, we're going to be looking at John chapter 11. So if you don't have a copy of God's Word ready with you right now, pause the video, go grab it. All right, cool, you're back. So I want to tell you a little bit about something that happened in my life. I know I've shared this story before about my friend John who passed away tragically before I moved to Washington, but I had this experience that I had never had before where I actually saw a dead body. And I think most of us have never experienced that because we live in the Western world in, the, in a modern culture and we kind of sanitize death in our culture. We just don't see a lot of it. But the reality is for most of human history, I would say up until about the 20th century and even now in the Eastern world, if you lived your whole life without seeing a dead person, without seeing a dead body, you were an outlier. You were not the rule. You were the exception because death was just normalized. It was a part of the human existence and we try to keep ourselves away from it. We're going to see in this passage today is that Jesus is going to come face to face with death. And as I had that experience, I remember going in with John's parents and, and viewing John's body. And I remember not just feeling sad, I was angry. And, and angry doesn't even quite capture the emotion. I was irate. I mean, I felt robbed cheated by death, that death had stolen from me one of my best friends, and I was angry. And this week, we're going to see Jesus is angry with death. In this passage, we're going to see the creator of all things. Remember that Jesus, at the beginning of John in chapter 1, is called the Word. And we know that with God's Word, he created everything that we see. Literally, the creator, Jesus, is going to stand face to face with the thing that is the enemy of creation. Because life was never meant to end in the original creation. And we're going to see Jesus, the creator, standing off with death itself. In our passage today, our big idea is this, is that everyday followers of Jesus have hope because our Savior has power over death. And as we open up our, our Bibles today and we look at uh, John chapter 11, starting in verse 1, I want us to understand our first point here is that Jesus displays his glory for our benefit if you, again, don't have a Bible, this is another time. Pause, run, grab one, let's follow along. We're going to start off in verse 1, chapter 11. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Stop for a second. Remember, John is writing this gospel and he, he writes, the one you love. John uses that statement. He's one of the only people, he's the only person actually in, in scripture who uses the one you love to describe someone in their relation to Jesus. You know who he reserves that for? Himself. John's in the inner circle, but he, he describes Lazarus this way. This family of siblings, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, were likely much more like an extended family of Jesus's in their closeness to him. Have you ever had friends that were so close you would call them chosen family? That's the connection we're talking about here. And the only other person John refers to in this way, the one whom you love, the one whom Jesus loved is himself. This is a very close relationship. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, 
that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Interesting how the next sentence starts. So, because he loves them, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. That's bizarre. We'll get to that. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. They were trying to kill you. And yet you're going back? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Jesus is reminding them of something he called himself, something he said about himself, that he is the light of the world, that he is the light. And when they're with him, he's calling on them at this point to trust in his protection and provision that while he's with them, they're safe. He's trying to reassure them. And then he goes on in verse 11. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples actually respond in a way that makes total sense. Like when you're sick, when you stay home from school, when you have the sniffles, okay, you stay home and you stay in bed because your mom and dad want you to rest. They might bring you some chicken noodle soup. Maybe you're watching trashy daytime television because that's the only thing that's on. But you are trying to rest yourself because your body needs to recuperate. So they say this, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe for their benefit. But let us go to him. I love this right here. This is just a side note. But then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Apparently Thomas wasn't a very good listener because he said, he's talking about Jesus here. He wasn't, let's not misconstrue this. Like Thomas is saying, let's also go and die with, with Lazarus. That's not, that's not actually what he's saying. He's saying, he's talking about Jesus. He thinks like going close to Jerusalem will end in Jesus's death because the religious leaders want to kill Jesus. And so Thomas here, he's more often known as the doubting disciple, doubting Thomas. Like how awful is it be if like your nickname was about the worst moment of your life? He's, he's doubting Thomas because of a few chapters later after Jesus' death and resurrection. But here, I want to refer to Thomas the way that I like to refer to him. Thomas is saying, let's go to Jerusalem and die alongside Jesus. Thomas is the ride or die disciple. I love Thomas' attitude here, even though he plainly was not listening very well. But we have, to, we have to try to understand something here. Something I said we're going to go back to. Jesus waits two days when he finds out that his friend is sick and mortally sick, right? He's, he's going to die. And yet we have to understand some things. And this is where we've been talking about, if you've been with us live, context is important. The journey from Bethany to where Jesus or where, to to Bethany where Jesus is going would take about a day. So when the messengers come to Jesus, it took them about a whole day to get there. Jesus waits two days and then he has another day of travel ahead of him after that. We're going to find out later on in this passage when Jesus shows up, Lazarus has already been dead four days. So likely Lazarus died the day the messengers left 
to come and get Jesus. So Jesus, knowing that, knows there's no point in going back right now. Now, there's also a significance of four days of death in a Jewish context. So we have to understand this. There was a popularly held Jewish belief that we can date back to at least 200 AD that Jews believe that the soul of a dead person remained in the near vicinity of the body, hoping to re-enter the body. Now, that's not something that we find in scripture. It's not something that we find to be actually true, but it's something they believed. And once decomposition sets in, or decomposition, sorry, sets in, the soul leaves. That was the popularly held belief. It takes about three days for decomposition to really begin to set in. And John wants us to know that Jesus' waiting proves that Lazarus was well and truly dead. This isn't like some princess bride thing where he's mostly dead, okay? He's really, really dead. And the disciples here are worried for Jesus' safety. This is a critical moment. Tensions are high. Anxiety is palpable. The, the disciples are going to grow in their belief because Jesus is marching toward his enemies. But he's, they're also going to grow in belief. Jesus says that you may believe. They're going to grow in their belief because of what Jesus does. See, this sentiment of Jesus doing this in order that they might believe is echoed in verses 41 and 42 later on in this passage. It says, Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. In other words, you've already heard me. I've already been talking about this with you. You already knew what I was going to do. I knew you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, the people that are going to witness what I'm going to do. Again, he says, That they may believe that you sent me. Jesus has already spoken to the Father. He says this and then does this miracle that we're going to see for the for their benefit in that day and for ours as readers 2000 years later that we may believe. See, we believe that Jesus has power over death because he displays power over death. And he will do that here in this narrative and after his own death. See, Jesus knows who he is. There's no confusion on Jesus' part. He's not trying to prove himself to himself, like, can I do this? That's not him, right? Like, I want you to imagine the first time you stepped onto a field or tried to do a crazy jump on your bike, and you're like, I'm going to do it so I can prove it to myself. That's not Jesus. Jesus knows who he is. He is helping other people, which includes you and me, to understand who he is and what his authority looks like. It's for our benefit. In fact, Matthew 28, 18, right as we start the Great Commission statement that everyone probably knows from Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How much authority? All of it. All right, point two, going deeper into this passage, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This is incredibly important that we get this part, but we're picking up in verse 17. On his arrival in Bethany, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Again, that's important, right? Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Listen to the way that these two sisters interact with Jesus. It's incredible. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And she doesn't get this. I want you to know, she doesn't think that Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. We know that because even though she said God will give you whatever you ask for, her concept when Jesus says that he will rise is not that Jesus is going to raise him from the dead, but that he will rise with the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Like she's racked with grief and that's where she's going and they want to follow and go with her in support. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, again, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. We got to unpack this a little bit. We got to understand something about the Jewish mourning period. It lasted for seven days. So Jesus literally shows up on the middle day of the mourning period. And this wasn't simply like how our funerals are today where we kind of sit quietly and there might be some, some quiet whimpering from the family in the front row. This was loud. I mean, we would probably view it in our Western culture as like obnoxious. They're screaming and wailing and they're mourning over death. So when she runs out of the house, she's probably been in the house with all these people just wailing for days. And they've been doing it with her in solidarity. They've come from Jerusalem. Now there's witnesses, by the way, to Jesus coming close to Jerusalem. Jesus was not in hiding at this point from the people who were trying to kill him. This is a turning point in the gospel where he is marching confidently toward the cross. Jesus can't sneak back into Jerusalem at this point. But what we really need to understand is that mourning was very different in first century Palestine, right? The sisters here also are not showing a lack of faith when they say, if you had been here. They'd never seen Jesus raise someone from the dead, but they had seen him do amazing things and heal people. So what they're simply saying is we have so much faith that we know if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. So this is a faith statement Faith that Jesus' mere presence could have altered what appears to be the ending. And Martha expresses faith in the coming resurrection in which all things will be made new. Which, by the way, she believes Jesus is the one who has the power to bring about. And Jesus says this, though, to her response, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is not just the provider of the resurrection and eternal life. He is the embodiment of those things. 
They don't exist as an external gift that he gives. It's not like anybody else could have been the store clerk where they have resurrection and life on the shelf and Jesus just happens to be the one in the shop that day taking it off the shelf and giving it as though he possesses those things. Jesus is those things. No one else can do this. No one else is the resurrection and the life. All of our hope hinges on Jesus being the resurrection and the life. They come from him. And guys, this should alter dramatically the way we see and approach everything, the way we see and approach others in our lives. You have access to the one, the only one who offers escape from the effects of our sin, which is eternal death and separation from God. And we're told here that whoever believes in him will live even though they die. In this life, they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. An eternal death is how we're meant to understand this. But the inverse is true as well. And this should be sobering. That without Jesus, and you know people in your life who do not have him, which means they do not have the resurrection and the life, there is no hope. There is literally only despair. John 14, 6, that we'll see in a few weeks, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other path to God. Point number three is that Jesus' anger at death should move us to repentance. Guys, I can remember being so angry at times uh, that I felt I would snap. Like this moment of like you're just seeing red. And usually it had to do with someone who I didn't like. Uh, somebody that you would maybe think of as an enemy, right? And I can remember in high school being so angry at certain people. Like just they were taunting me and I would get angry and see red. Jesus is in this moment feeling that kind of anger. Only his is righteous anger at something that deserves it. So let's walk through the last 12 verses here, starting in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Take that deeply moved, store it away in your mind for a few minutes later, okay? Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. We're going to talk about why he cried. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more deeply moved, stored away, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been in there for four days. He is well and truly dead. We've passed the three-day mark. He ain't coming back. Shows that she still doesn't think that Jesus is going to do what he's about to do. Here's what happens. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Again, for our benefit. So they took the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face because he was prepared for burial. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go.
Jesus is moved in this passage by Mary and Martha's grief. He's, but he doesn't cry over Lazarus' death. That would be foolish because he knows he's about to raise him from the dead. He's not crying because Lazarus is dead. He knows what he's about to do. But he's deeply moved, we see. And in the Greek, what this means is that Jesus is angry. Not angry. He's furious at the sting of death. Have you ever been so angry that all you could do was cry? Jesus weeps because of death death itself because death is the enemy of God's plan if Jesus is the resurrection and the life he's standing toe to toe right now with his mortal enemy death is literally anti-Christ if Jesus is the life then death is anti-Jesus This scene in a graveyard is the standoff between the author of life and the wreckage of sin which causes death. And Jesus calls out in a loud voice. The Greek here would indicate a shout of raw authority. Jesus is commanding death. And here's the crazy thing. Maybe you've been so upset by someone who's died and you've begged and pleaded for them to come back to life. Jesus shouts with raw authority and death bends see i think when we look at stories like this we tend to think the way that jesus responded the way that he emotes the way that he responds and he cries with the family and all those things we thought we we want to be like jesus we are like jesus we're jesus in the story we like to put ourselves into stories and i want to caution us against that we're not jesus in the story we're the ones who need to seek repentance because we have participated in the anti-jesus stuff of sin which results in death. We are those who have contributed voluntarily toward the very thing that Jesus came to destroy. Should we be angry at sin and death? Absolutely. It should drive us to our knees in repentance for the ways in which we've not only brought this evil in, but we've actively invited it in. When was the last time that your sin broke you? I mean, that addiction that no one knows about, the discord and disunity that you've contributed to, maybe even in your small group or just in church, the lies that you maybe have told. Fill in the blank with whatever it is, but the reality is we have often sided with the enemy. And this fact should drive us to repentance. See, Jesus weeps in fury at this enemy that we've willingly sided with because it seeks the death and destruction of those he loves, you and me. And if you follow Jesus, sin and death sought to claim you. The, 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 God's word describes sin and death or the devil as a roaring lion which seeks to devour you. Thank God that Jesus deemed us worth dying for. Because sin, if you're a follower of Jesus, is no longer your master. Our Savior has spoken with raw authority over it in this story. And he destroys death when he rises from his own grave. Guys, our big idea, again, to wrap us up, is that everyday followers of Jesus have hope because our Savior has power over death. So as we close, I want to consider these questions. Again, always going to ask you, why does any of this even matter? And if we really believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, how should this impact our daily lives and our interactions with others? And as we look at how we have participated in sin that leads to death, what ways have we participated in that that we need to confess before a God who loved us so much, liked us so much, wants us so much, that he would send his only son 
to take our place, that we might have a relationship with him. Guys, thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you next time.